Well, they say that the body keeps score. And in terms of my relationship with my body, it's been interesting. I had my flatline experience. So my body woke me up and said, okay, this isn't working. And then I've been going through my cancer journey. And it's one more time for my body to say, hey, give some attention to this. I like to think of our body as a rental vehicle that we were issued at birth. And as we're in this vehicle longer, it, it has more dings and you know, fender benders and doesn't look quite as good on the exterior. But you know what's more important is what it feels like on the inside. Is my body failing me or am I failing my body? That's a question that I've often asked myself in this cancer journey. And what I've come to realize is that number one is cancer is a teacher. Cancer is not here for me to kill it. I do want to graduate from it. So cancer is a teacher. It's teaching me all kinds of things if I'm awake and aware enough to see them. And secondly, I am not at war with my body or with cancer. I am in engagement. So I guess what I think of when it comes to my relationship with my body is I'm more focused on the long-term maintenance than the short-term vanity. This episode of the Kintsugi Podcast is brought to you by Pause, Breathe, Reflect, which can help you bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. Hey there, my fellow like-hearted humans. It's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. Today, we have another wonderful story of connection with a social alchemist, writer, elder, son, partner, and I'll just say a difference maker in this world. He is putting out a beautiful ripple, a ripple of connection. So if you're ready, settle into a comfortable position, take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out and get to know Chip Connolly and fall in love with midlife. Chip. Good to see you. How are you? Michael, thank you. I am raw, (laughs) raw and imperfect, (laughs) perfectly suited for your podcast. Absolutely. I, I think we're all a little imperfect and raw, right? So it's that whole question of like, how are you is we can pass by it so quickly. Like it's just, it can feel so transactional, but I think we're all going through things. I know you're going through a lot. I'm I'm going through a lot. So that question of how are you, if we pause just long enough, we can get into our rawness. So uh, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I am two thirds of the way through my radiation journey for my prostate cancer and uh, stage three. And so, yeah, you're catching me on a day where I am even more raw and imperfect. (laughs) Hey, that's how we like our humans here. So uh, yes, yes. Like out of curiosity, I know you do a lot of writing about your journey with cancer, your battle with cancer. How is that for you to write about it and share it so publicly? Gosh, so cathartic. So cathartic. Yeah, you know, I I definitely have people in my life who tell me like, Chip, TMI, (laughs) like you do not need to share all of this. But I learned a long time ago, you're as sick as your secrets. And and so I 
I appreciate the fact that I can use my daily blog, which is called Wisdom Well, to highlight what I'm learning along the way. You know, I mean, if wisdom is our metabolized experience and our painful life lessons are the raw material for our future wisdom and wisdom is not taught, it's shared, sharing my life experience is a form of sharing wisdom. And so, yeah, it's hard at times to talk about stuff, especially bodily functions that aren't that aren't going well. I mean, it's a little messy, but I appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people out there going through all kinds of stuff and often they don't feel comfortable talking about them, uh, what they're going through, especially men. And I appreciate the fact that there are people who will see me as a mirror by me being vulnerable and imperfect. It allows them to be more vulnerable and imperfect. And so I'm doing my good deed by showing my frailties you know, in public. I love that. And as a reader of your blog, I appreciate the senses, like the feelings, like all of it that you're bringing to your journey. Because I think current day, we hear about folks having cancer and it's so commonplace. I think it is easy to gloss over, like that person has cancer, but we forget what that journey is like for the particular person that we know. And each person's journey is is different. It's unique to them. And when I read your blog, I can I can feel it. Thank you. It's messy. And you know what? Life is complicated and messy. And it can be oh so beautiful as well. So uh, thanks for putting a mirror out there for others. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I write books. I have my seventh book coming out soon. But when I was a teenager, I, I felt embarrassed about my desire to write. My father had sort of said, it's not a practical thing. He didn't say it was a, not a masculine thing, but I got that impression. And so, you know, of course there's Ernest Hemingway and others who are great masculine writers, but absolutely, yeah. I got the point of view of like, okay, I better walk away from this. And I did everything I could to walk away from my writing. And I won't bore everybody in terms of all the details of like what I did to sort of walk away from writing. And then it was in my late thirties after I started a boutique hotel company and I've been running it for 10 years and people were asking me to give my, you know, tell my story because I had become a successful young CEO of burgeoning, you know, hospitality company in in a space, uh, boutique hotels that were sort of new to the US. And one day a literary agent came to me and she said, Chip, God, you've got a book inside of you. And I just broke down laughing because I said, I have done everything I can (laughs) to not be a writer. And she said, you have a book inside of you about being a rebel entrepreneur. And and so she convinced me to write a book. It came very easily to me. It was called The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. And next thing I knew, I was writing a lot. And so I, having a daily blog is a huge commitment, but it's also a calling because it allows me to to get into my craft of what I enjoy doing and, and I get into flow when I'm writing. That is so cool. So for people who don't know you yet, they don't know your work, Yeah. if you put your work to the side, so the work you do as an elder, the work you do as a writer. So if you put the professional part of Chip to the side, how would you describe yourself? I have been called a social alchemist. (laughs) Mm, I like that. A mixologist of people. So I think that is true. And yet that is the extroverted side of me. The extroverted side of me is pretty good at knowing how to mix people together and create the container for life-changing conversations to happen. You know, and I've been doing that since I was a teenager when I became an extrovert. But as a kid, when I was younger, I was a pretty extreme introvert. And I would say that I, you know, I'm somebody who has a pretty active imagination. And I am someone who is a closet creative type. 
again, like my writing, I, I did a lot to to neglect that creativity. And when I finally sort of in my mid-20s just doubled down on it, it was amazing what came from that. So yeah, I am a bit of an ambivert, which is a an ambidextrous introvert, extrovert at the same time. I can totally appreciate that because I, I do believe I fall into that category. I love my alone time. Yeah. I was talking to my daughters over the holidays, the Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, New Year's holiday about my life as a kid and how much time I spent alone in my bedroom making up games and playing with... Oh my God, I did the same. <laughs> yeah. So we had this whole conversation about uh, match uh, box cars because... Oh, I love them. Yeah. In my Christmas stocking, almost every year, I would have the requisite orange and apple and there was, you know, trinkets, like little gifts in your stocking. And I would get matchbox cars and... Did you get Hot Wheels too? Hot Wheels, yeah, the whole thing. And I had a collection of that orange track. And I might have had a collection of about 200 of these cars. And I would create this ramp from my dresser. And I had the special track that had a finish line. So I could do one-up racing, matching. And so I would line up all 200 cars. I would pair them up. And there'd be a big tournament. And I would just spend hours in my room doing that to see which car was the fastest based on matchups and stuff like that. So I can completely appreciate the need to be quiet. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Rochester, New York, and then uh, ended up in D.C. That's where that's where I met my wife. So uh, and then we moved to New Jersey because the corporate life took us there. And we've been here ever since. So it's uh, but I still my dad's still back in Rochester. So I try to go back as frequently as I can because I've reached that age where my parents are aging and they don't give you a playbook for that, which I know we'll get into. Yeah, we're all aging. Unfortunately, when you get to your parents' age or my parents' age, because my both my parents at 86 are still living, we don't call them aging anymore. We call them aged. Yes, yes. <laughs> As in past tense. I've never thought of that before, but we're like, aging is a process. But when you get to a certain age, you're no longer in the process. You're just like past tense, aged. <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, my dad is 87 and going on 88. So he has lived a life. So uh, Kintsugi as a show, as a concept, is about connection. So one thing my wife and I love to hear are relationship connection stories. So how did you meet your partner? So my partner's Israeli. His name's Oren. I was 28. He was 25. We were at the San Francisco airport. This is in 1989, way before 9-11. And you could actually go out to the gate and wait for somebody at the gate back then. And so we were both going there to pick somebody pick people up from an, a flight from LA to San Francisco and the flight was late. And so we started talking. And next thing I knew, a couple of days later, he was picking me up on a motorcycle and we were going out for some coffee or tea. And I was like on the back of a motorcycle. I was like, okay. And what I appreciated about Warren, and, and this was again, 1989, so this is a long time ago, is I appreciated, you know, is, Israelis are a fascinating lot, as I think you may know. Yes. They can be stubborn, hard-headed, and argumentative. And yet he's also a Taurus. So he's a classic Taurus is somebody who's like hard on the exterior and soft on the inside. Yeah, yes. And that describes him. And so he's sort of doubly hard on the exterior because he's Israeli and he's a Taurus. And so there's that like stubbornness and a sort of tough guy. Although, you know, he's a bit of an introvert himself. So you don't wouldn't necessarily know that unless you spent more time with him because he doesn't show that off. But when we met, I was a pretty significant extrovert and I was really, you know, we, we were a nice combo. And um, 
so yeah, that's how we met. And I've spent a lot of time in Israel. And of course, it's a very complicated time for that country right now in that region in the world. And uh, he's actually over there in Israel right now. He left He left 18 hours before the Hamas uh, attack happened. So wow. this is his first time back there. So um, that's how we met. And so I'm, a, I'm an honorary Jew. That's great. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. That's a great story. Yeah, the days where we could go to the gate and just yeah. hang out and find connection there. It's pretty... Such a different era. Yeah, it seems it seems so long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. It's really incredible. It really wasn't, but it's uh, yeah, a whole different era now. But I do, I always love, you know, one of my favorite things at airports, I, I mean, I don't go and do this, but I, I like coming home from an international flight. And in the international flight, you, you go through the customs and all that, and you come out and there's always these, all these people out there. It's, you know, mostly immigrants who are there to meet somebody from their home country who's coming to visit them. And in San Francisco or wherever I'm living, I, I just really deeply appreciate that because you just see the joy, especially this time of year. It's the holidays right now in the Bay Area. And you just see the joy of people coming home and that connection and you hear people screaming and oh my god i am a sucker for connection as well yeah i also appreciate that if you fly to an international destination you get the same thing as you come through customs there's a, a sea of people it can it can feel overwhelming but there's these signs and celebration and you know to me the way i look at it is in this moment no one's really taking connection for granted and it, it can be so easy to take connection for granted, the whole like airport drop off. And there's a, I think there's a good scene from when Harry met Sally, when Harry's explaining like the whole airport drop off to Sally, it's just, you know, for us, the drop off at the airport is a big deal in our family, whether you're flying domestically or internationally, because it's, you know, it's about reconnecting if someone's arriving or just you know, the whole process of seeing someone off, right? And it's just, you know, they're connecting to a different spot and you don't know. And you just don't know. I mean, both of us have had NDEs and like, we'll talk about that in a minute. You don't know. Will you see this person again? So I am with you. I think it's, you know, there's a preciousness when you were at the airport and saying goodbye to someone or saying hello. You know, it's a little window into our relationship with mortality, you know, because it's learning how to say goodbye. Learning how to say goodbye. And that's not something we, we do easily. Yeah. And appreciating that none of us live forever. Like when none of us gets out of this thing called life alive. And yeah, I'd love to talk about your near death experience. Cause, you know, for me, as you just referenced, I went away. I got on a flight to Newark Airport to come out to New Mexico, which we will also talk about a little bit later, thinking, okay, this is, you know, the 10th, 20th, 30th trip of the year. And each time I go away, I come back. So I'll go away and I'll come back. And with that trip, I almost didn't come back. And you also had an experience like that where you were away and you had an, a near-death experience. I was hoping you could share because yeah. based on what I know of it, it became a seminal moment for you, an inflection point, if you will, to get into the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, it was. Well, first of all, just so I know, what happened to you on, on your trip? Yeah, so I was at a company offsite, one of those corporate Monday through Friday gigs, you know, that they torture you with team building and PowerPoint and all that jazz. And we went out to New Mexico. So we were north of Albuquerque, but south of Santa Fe. Yeah, there's a Hyatt there. 
There is a Hyatt there. Yes, it it might be the Hyatt I was at. So, but I I rarely reference it. So, but it was the Hyatt when it first opened. Mm, okay. So this is before what you probably see as you travel around the area. You know, there was no casino. There was a golf course. Some of the guys brought off their brought out their golf clubs. Right. But being a cyclist, I brought my bike out and on. One of the laps I was doing on the hotel property was a two-mile loop. A Ford Explorer crossed the center line of the road as it was coming into the hotel and hit me head-on. Oh, geez. It was going about 40 miles an hour, and I broke a whole bunch of everything. The doctors told my wife, had I been 10 years older, I was 33 at the time, or not in shape, I would have passed away before I got to the hospital because... Besides breaking a lot of bones, I also lacerated the femoral artery. So I was bleeding out in the middle of New Mexico. And they medevaced me to the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque, the only trauma one center at the state. They saved my life. They saved my leg. And then uh, spent some time there in Albuquerque before they flew me back to New Jersey and New York. So that was my experience. So what was crazy is that the girls about that property, to digress a little bit, so my girls were into this show, The Bachelor, which is a popular show. And so they were watching one season. I think this was this was during the pandemic. So we were all home. I came into the living room as they were watching it. And I was like looking at this property. I'm like, where are they filming this this year? Like usually they'd go to some like exotic location and, yeah, you know, it'd be palm trees. And I'm looking at this place and looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this it seems so familiar. And <laughs> yeah. I said, where, girls, where, where, where is this? And they're like, they're like, I don't know. Like, I think they're in New Mexico. And I was like, that's where dad got hit. And they were like, oh, you know, cause they were three and a half years old at the time in seven months. And so, yeah, so that was my experience. That was my that was my first trip to New Mexico. <laughs> and maybe your last. <laughs> I've gone back a couple times, but I there's a little there's a little something something within me when I think about mm. the state. And it's yeah, it's yeah. I would say it's complicated. And there's probably another podcast <laughs> in just that whole like complicated story that I have with the state. Yeah. Well, I my story is not quite as gruesome because I didn't have broken bones or lacerated femoral arteries. I, I I had a broken ankle and I had a septic leg. And so I was on a very strong antibiotic that wasn't working. And so my leg was becoming more septic. So I went on a different antibiotic and I was feeling better. And they did say there could be side effects with this antibiotic, but I wasn't, I didn't seem to have any. So I flew to St. Louis from San Francisco where I was giving a speech. And strangely enough, at the end of my speech, as I was signing books, thankfully I was sitting down, I went unconscious. And um, they put me on the ground and then, you know, the paramedics showed up very soon. And once they put me on the gurney and the, I had heart monitors on me, um, I had my first flatline experience. I had nine flatline experiences in 90 minutes. And um, I had basically, long story short, is I had an allergic reaction to the antibiotic. Now, they're not, they're still are not sure of that, but there was no other explanation. But I was 47 years old. I was going through the bottom of the U-curve of happiness, which is a social science research project that's been global that shows that, generally speaking, our life satisfaction declines consistently from about age 22, 23 till about 45 to 50. And then you bottom out and you get happier starting around age 50 with each decade after that. And so I was going, I was going through my own, before I had ever heard of the U-curve of happiness, I was going through my own you know, example of it. And 
I hit my bottom when I had my flatline experience. I, I mean, I can't say it any other way because from that point forward, it was a bit of a divine intervention. I, I sort of woke up. I was a hotelier. I you know, was one of the first boutique hoteliers in the US. And so I had a hotelier wake up call. But what it did is it helped me to see like, I am in the prison of my own making. My life was falling apart on every level, but I could sort of let it fall apart and, and then put it back together in a new way. And that's what I did. And everything changed. And I really credit my NDE, my near-death experience, with the idea that I was open to making a bunch of transitions and changes in my life that I probably would have had a hard time doing without that experience. I mean, one of the things I do today is I spend a lot of time with midlifers who are in the midst of change. And I, I say to people, you know, you don't have to have an NDE, you don't have to die, and or you don't have to have like awful circumstances in order to make the change. You just need to sort of see the signs that change is, is needed. And then there's a, you know, what we call the anatomy of a transition that, you know, we help people through. So long story short is it was a curse and a gift at the same time. Yeah. It was your nadir moment, like in, you know, same same with me. And I'm glad I'm glad you shared this because I was a few weeks ago, I was out at our mutual friend Rich Roll's place to record his podcast. And of course, Rich asked me about my experience. And he has, as you know, his experience. Yeah. And the question really was around, do you have to hit rock bottom to go through like what you went through, what I went through, Rich, others to change? And, and my answer is like, no, but you can do, we can all do a better job listening and uh, listening to our bodies so we can perhaps avoid going to rock bottom before we make some changes. Yeah. Well, they say that the body keeps score, famous book. And in terms of my relationship with my body, it's been interesting having cancer now. So I had my flatline experience. So my body woke me up and said, okay, this isn't working. And then I've been going through my cancer journey. And it's one more time for my body to say, hey, give some attention to this. I like to think of our body as a rental vehicle that we were issued at birth. And as we're in this vehicle longer, it, it has more dings and you know fender benders and doesn't look quite as good on the exterior. But you know what's more important is as that rental vehicle gets older is what it feels like on the inside, not what it looks like on the outside. And but I have had this you know interesting relationship with my body and my mind and my spirit and like you know is my body failing me or am I failing my body? That's a question that I've often asked myself in this cancer journey. And what I've come to realize is that number one is cancer is a teacher. Cancer is not here for me to kill it. I do want to graduate from it. So cancer is a teacher. It's teaching me all kinds of things if I'm awake and aware enough to see them. And secondly, I am not at war with my body or with cancer. I am, you know, frankly, in a an engagement. And the engagement is to be the student. And so my body is, it's not something I'm, it's a weird feeling. I am not my body and yet I am my body. And when I say that, what I mean is, you know, especially as we get older, often people get really grumpy because their body isn't what it doesn't look like it used to. And therefore that, you know, that rental vehicle like looks like it's been around the block too many times. And so we start to get, you know, have a relationship with our body. Like, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet it is, it is our vehicle that takes us through life. So the, the importance of maintenance of the vehicle is important. So I guess what I think of when it comes to my relationship with my body is I'm more focused on the long-term maintenance than the short-term vanity. And that's a good thing to say at age 63, uh, because if it was the short-term vanity, I would be spending a lot of my time trying to maintain a six-pack. You know, as you get older, Michael, a six-pack becomes more expensive. Yes, yes. <laughs> and what I mean is it takes more time. 
takes more time to have a six pack, you know, as you get older. And if you want to invest the time, that's a completely volitional, you know, agency. We have agency over that. But I deeply believe that if I was to spend, you know, three hours a day trying to keep a six pack, there's all kinds of other parts of my life that would actually atrophy as a result of that. So that's why I say a six pack is expensive as you get older. Absolutely. Well, there's an opportunity cost to do all that other stuff. And I believe the six pack is always there. We just have a little bit more insulation to keep the six pack a little bit cooler. <laughs> but what you know, I hear from you, Chip, is that you're in relationship with your body and or the body, depending on like how we view it, and relationship with the cancer as a as a teacher student, as opposed to trying to fight it and a gladiator. Yeah, and for some people that go through their cancer journey, they take on that gladiator energy and. And that can work for them. And that's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's. I mean, I, here's my recommendation for anybody who has a friend or you're going through it yourself. Determine what kind of relationship you want. Yes. And if you're the gladiator, then go at it as a gladiator. If I'm the student, then I'm going to sort of show up as a student with inquiry. And, you know, it, if I'm going to be the scientist and I'm going to try to understand everything, the logic of my cancer, and I'm going to beat it by using logic, use that. But I, I don't think there's a right way here. I think the key, though, is to have a relationship here and own that relationship and then use that relationship to rid yourself of the cancer. For me, it's graduation, you know, and that, so that's how I look at it. For someone else, it could be, you know, using your brilliance to outsmart cancer or it could be using, you know, just your tough guy to like beat it and beat it to smithereens. So, you know, I'm perfectly fine with people having various archetypes that sort of define them as they go through this journey. Yeah, there are many pathways to whatever type of enlightenment we want to seek. Just don't be the victim. Yeah, and yeah. that's the thing, you know, people will say now, uh, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. And so that's fine. That's, you know, it's, the survivor's fine, but I don't want to be called a victim. That's for sure. Because if you're a cancer victim, you're sort of saying, okay, I've been cursed and I've maybe lost, you know, often a victim is someone who has been wronged and I don't want to go there. That's for sure. Yeah. I completely hear you. Coming up, Chip and I talk about that complicated, messy, and awesome phase of life called midlife. We also talk about Rumi and something that might be illegal in the state of New Jersey. All right, let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. 
So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. So let's talk about midlife. So here we are. Yeah. For a lot of folks, I'll throw myself in this camp. Midlife can be challenging. Your your kids, if you have kids, they're either going to college, leaving college, the empty nest happens. Relationships can change. You've already mentioned our bodies do change, our parents age. Yeah. For many, this is the the peak of our income earning potential. And, you know, given the insecurity within corporate life, we feel like we want to hang on to it. So like all this stuff is changing and we're hanging on to things that we we don't want to let go of. So there's a lot of sometimes a lot of grasping and clenching in midlife. And it can also be like amazing. You know, I left my corporate life at the age of 47 and I've had like a really good run since then. It's my corporate life was great. I enjoyed it. It shaped me, but I've also enjoyed these last nine years. So let's get into midlife. And I love what you said, like you've referenced this multiple times that midlife has a bad, like a bad PR firm or bad public relations. So (laughs) I, I was hoping you could help us get into this conversation about midlife. Yeah, so so midlife is a is it's a 20th century phenomenon. Let's be clear. Like there was no such thing as midlife in the 19th century. The average person lived till age 47 in the year 1900, but by the year 2000 they were living till 77. So 30 additional years of longevity in one century, which sprouted and emerged this idea of midlife. And in 1965, a Canadian psychologist named Elliot Jakes coined in a white paper, like like nobody ever read the thing, but he coined the term the midlife crisis and it just took off. And the premise was that it is around midlife. And back then they defined midlife maybe a little earlier. Maybe it would have been 35 to 55 or 40 to 60. Today it's a broader definition, which I'll talk about in a minute. And it was a period of time when you were sort of like wanting to go back to adolescence. It was the original thinking around the midlife crisis was it something you're going through because you don't like your life. You want to, instead of being in middle-essence, you want to go back to adolescence. And that's why people want, you know, men mostly want to go buy a sports car and have an affair. So you want to sort of like escape all the obligations and responsibilities. It is also a period of time when you're starting to come face-to-face with the fact that your body is deteriorating and you have death in your midst whether it's family members or friends. And so it's a lot. And now today, midlife is even thought more broadly. It's 35 to 75 because more and more people are living to 100. So, And it starts early because artificial intelligence and the digital economy have a lot of people, even in mid-30s, feeling obsolescent. So long story short is it's a long period. It's a marathon. And the reason I was intrigued by it is not only because of my own issues at age 47, 
and really between 45 and 50 was when I had my tough time. But also I lost five male friends to suicide, ages 42 to 52, during the Great Recession. And so I was really intrigued by like, what the hell's going on here? What I've learned over time, first of all, my, my 50s were my favorite decade in my life by far. So let's start by saying, yes, that U-curve of happiness suggests that after 50, it gets better and better. So I, I can see that and I, I understand the rationale behind it because what happens often in midlife is people have to readjust their expectations of life and get clear about what's important to themselves. And you know, my new book really speaks to this. It's called Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And I really wanted to understand what are the reasons that people actually get happier after age 50? So I now believe that midlife is not a crisis, it's a chrysalis. And if you think about the caterpillar to butterfly journey, midlife for the butterfly was that cocoon that the caterpillar spun, you know, unexpectedly. And all of a sudden, you know, the caterpillar went in there and liquefied itself and, and became a butterfly. And the chrysalis is, you know, dark, gooey, and solitary, but it's also where the transformation happens. And over and over again, with over 4,000 people who've gone through our midlife wisdom school called MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, I have seen people go through a transformative era in their midlife that actually helped them get clear on how to consciously curate the rest of their lives. So long story short is, I now call it the midlife chrysalis, not the midlife crisis. I love that. I love just love the imagery of that transformation. And I think you would say this, that we each go through our cocoon phase at a different pace. You know, I think there's, in today's society, being quick as it is, like always going on the hamster wheel, if you will that I think there's there's a general pull towards, okay, you're at this moment, you might feel broken to pull into the Kintsugi analogy, or we're going to put you back together really quickly, and then you're going to have your new shape, your new form, as quickly as possible. But, you know, in your experience working with the people that you've worked with, I imagine that we all go through this at our own pace. And that's perfectly fine, almost going back to what we talked about around cancer, we all have our own way of dealing with it. And we should have a way, but be really comfortable with the fact that we, this is not a, necessarily a race. No. I mean, when you're going through it, what's often called the messy middle, you want that chrysalis period to not last very long. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, you need to have enough time in there for something to transform. And so at MEA, at, at our school, we really help people to understand what are the tools they have and practices they have available to them to help guide them on that journey in that midlife period, in, the, in that chrysalis. Because frankly, if you have the tools and practices to make it through it in an accelerated fashion, that could be a good thing. But you need the tools and practices. If you actually try to come out of the chrysalis too early, you're, you're going to die. You're not going to be a butterfly. So I am a big fan of the idea of helping people to understand the logic and the life stage rationale of what happens in midlife. We're really good. I mean, the word adolescent didn't exist until 1904. And once a book came out with the title Adolescence, all of a sudden we really thought of the teen years differently. Previous to that, we thought of the teen years as being an adult. Once you hit puberty, you're an adult. And so adolescence is a time period that we know is full of transitions and it's complicated and you're going through puberty and et cetera. You're going through hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. We're doing the same in midlife. We're going through hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. And yet we don't really have much in the way of social support nor language to help people to understand what is happening during that period. And unfortunately, as was true of some of my friends who, who took their own lives, they thought they were just 
awful at the game of life. And therefore, they didn't want to play this game anymore. And what I really want to do is to help people to understand, okay, this is normal. A lot of the stuff that's going on in midlife is normal. You should not feel badly about it. And there are tools that are available to you to help you go through that period. Yeah, what I hear, and I'll say this too, Chip, I'm so sorry for the losses that you experienced in your life with your friends. Yeah, thanks. It's so much more common today, especially for us men. We, you know, women are also going through it, but men seem to take a more violent approach. What a surprise. <laughs> yeah, so surprise, surprise. And so we we can pull through that that desire to end one life, um, maybe a little bit with like more effectiveness, as strange as that sounds, but just we're going through, I think, as humans so much having come through the pandemic and just what's happening on the on the world stage and what's happening in our lives that you know there's a poem by Rumi that I love poetry is a big part of uh Kintsugi and my life as a meditation teacher called the guest house I'm I'm not sure if you know it oh, oh it's my favorite of all time you know I, I'm not sure when Rumi wrote the guest house what age he was at but you know he you know obviously he lived you know, years and years ago. So when the life expectancy probably was around 40, but he writes about like, you know, greet all your visitors at the door laughing. And we get to this age of like in our 40s and we've tried to control so much of our lives, like going to the right college and the right career and like following the script, we're controlling who comes to our door. And then all of a sudden we get to 40, 45, 50, whatever it may be. And then all these visitors come to our guest house and we're like, hey, hey, wait, you're not allowed here. But like what I hear you talk about in the work that you do at MEA is helping people open the door to all the visitors, that, that openness that we can go forward with a little bit more openness and hopefully a little bit more equanimity as we approach life. Well, as someone who's a hotelier, <laughs> the idea of a guest house and the idea of being the host to all of these emotions that are meant to come through you is, you know, very natural for me. And, you know, you just don't want some of these emotions to overstay their welcome. I mean, they, they're booked for two days. Yes. That's it. <laughs> they have a two night stay and like, okay, you're supposed to check out now and you don't get late checkout privileges. Yes, 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 yes. We have to turn the room over. So I, lo I love that. I love the poem. I love the, the metaphor. I also think the weather, you know, we talk about the ex, when we're having sort of a small talk conversation with someone, you talk about the weather. And, you know, when you have a big talk conversation with someone, you talk about the internal weather. And that's really what's going on when we've got emotions is there's, there's a, you know, there's a thunderstorm happening inside me right now, or there's just like rays of sunshine or um, it's windy or whatever it is. The weather is not constant. And if you're going through a weather system, an internal weather system that is troubling, it can change just like the external weather. So, you know, if you want, if you want to just hold on to it, then it, it'll stay there as long as you want to. But like, that's not how the external weather works. So your internal weather can also be constantly evolving. But yeah, I think helping ourselves become more emotionally fluent. I wrote a book a few years ago. I was lucky enough. It was a New York Times bestseller called Emotional Equations. And it was really about trying to, like, as in a very male kind of way, trying to understand the emotions in the form of equations. And it really helped me to become more emotionally fluent and understand, like, when I'm feeling jealousy, what are the component parts of it? Or when I'm feeling disappointment, or if I'm feeling joy, or I'm feeling 
anxiety. What's underneath it? And for example, anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. And those are the two predominant raw materials to make anxieties when you don't know something or you don't control something. And so the key in terms of addressing anxiety is how do you actually learn more about something so you feel like less uncertainty? And how do you look for your agency, look for your influence or impact, even in small ways, so that you actually feel less powerlessness? I'm fascinated by emotions. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, we we live with our questions and we live with our emotions. And so uh, I'd love to ask you about what an experience feels like, speaking of emotions, if someone came to one of your retreats, either in Baja, but also you have a relatively new campus in Santa Fe, so in New Mexico, which who knows, it may be part of my I think it is my journey to go to Santa Fe and maybe change my relationship with the state. But I'd love to have you come to a workshop that I'm leading there. So we have workshops year round in both locations. Uh, Santa Fe opens in April. Oh, that's so cool. So the workshops, we have really, there's three key pillars and then an overriding sort of umbrella that defines the MEA, the Midlife Wisdom School. And it's number one, how do we help people navigate transitions? We've talked a little bit about that today. Number two is how do we help people cultivate purpose? And number three is how do we help people own their wisdom and understand what gift or talent they have evolved in their life in such a way that it has value in the world so they can share it. The umbrella that holds all that together is helping people to reframe their relationship with aging. Because Becca Levy at at Yale has shown that when people shift their mindset from a negative to a positive when it comes to aging, uh, they gain seven and a half years of additional life, which is more life than if you actually stopped smoking at 50 or started exercising at 50. So there's huge public benefit to helping as a society, helping people understand that aging is not all bad. There's some actually, there's some upside to aging as well. So that's sort of the content and the emotions that are people going through in a five-night program is they're, number one is they're realizing that for the other two dozen people in the workshop with them, that, my God, your story is very normal. (laughs) There's a lot of other people who have a similar story. And as I said earlier, wisdom is not taught, it's shared. How do we create the crucible for people to have these life-changing conversations where they actually share their wisdom? And how do they learn the tools and practices? Everything from mindfulness practices, which we teach, but also to learning how to become a beginner again. We help people learn how to do equine-assisted learning in Santa Fe or learn how to surf in Baja. And nobody has to do these things, but learning how to become a beginner in midlife is really important. And it's really important partly because as we get older, if we are not careful, our sandbox gets smaller and smaller. We get into a fixed mindset. We sort of see the way the world works and we are no longer trying to improve ourselves and learn. We're just trying to prove ourselves and win. And and if you do that, you end up really bored. And so helping people to become a beginner again, helping them to realize that they can connect with people from the inside out um, so that you know, how do you make connections? One of our faculty members is a guy named Dacker Keltner. Oh, yeah. Who's a UC Berkeley professor who started the Greater Good Science Center. And he he teaches at MEA once a year. And he wrote a book called Awe uh, in early 2023. It came out. And it was really interesting to see the eight pathways, common pathways to awe globally. And you would have think like number one on the list would be nature, but actually it was number three on the list. But number one and number two on the list of how do people feel awe in their lives, both were very pro-social, they're very communal based. Um, number two on the list was something called collective effervescence. 
And that's when we feel a sense of communal joy with others in such a way that our sense of ego separation dissolves and our sense of connection actually grows. So it's perfect for this podcast. And, and I, you know, I was a founding board member of the, the Burning Man nonprofit that owns Burning Man. And so I'm <laughs> very focused on collective effervescence. I went around the world to 36 festivals in 16 countries in one year to try to understand, like, how do, how do we create collective effervescence in a digital age? And then the number one on the list was moral beauty. Yes. How do we witness courage and kindness and equanimity and qualities that help us to have a newfound faith in humanity? And so I would just say that MEA is dedicated to helping people feel a deep sense of awe in beautiful places with nature, but also feel that sense of collective effervescence and feel that sense of moral beauty. And not just in observing it in other people, but actually seeing it in ourselves as well. And, you know, I'm a social alchemist, so I am a bit of a cocktail producer. Uh, I know how to mix people and mix content in such a way to have a transformative experience. And I'm proud of that and love that we have over 4,000 people from 45 countries around the world who've come to our campus to experience it. That's so incredible. One of the things, Chip, that I missed most during the pandemic was live music. There's something about being in a small club or a large arena, everyone's there. And there's a moment when maybe the artist's big song comes on and everyone knows every word to that song. Yeah, And the artist just stands on stage and then the whole crowd, like they love different people. They pray, they may not pray. Uh, They vote differently. They've come from different lived experiences. But in that moment, there was a- Yeah, collective effervescence. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, it's just like, it's how you make goosebumps appear. It's so cool. And (laughs) When Dacker was naming his book Awe, he named it Awe, which is the right name for it. But he he and I are friends and he was saying like, what name should I give? And I said like, give the book the name Goosebumps. Because in many ways, that's what happens when you feel awe. Yes, yeah. You have this actual physical reaction. You know, we could use more goosebumps, you know. We could. We could use more goosebumps. That's something the world could use more of. And I'm going to do my part in helping to proliferate goosebumps. I love it. Like, that's a really great mission. I love it. I also imagine, like, when you're sharing the experience, when you come to an event, like a retreat, there's usually, having gone to many retreats, there's there's usually excitement. You know, there's there's wonder when you come. Like, who's going to be there? What will my experience be like? And I can only imagine like that first night as people like meet each other for the first time, because sometimes we go to a retreat searching for something or we're looking for a connection to form our kintsugi. And it's very possible we might feel like I'm the only one that feels this way. And then we sit and we start to talk to other people and you're like, oh, wow, like your stories of my story, my stories and your story. And like, oh, I don't feel so alone now. I feel connected because we're all going through this. I'm sure people have that experience on day one and throughout the week, right? Well, let's start by saying that to be in a room of a couple dozen people you never met before can be a little bit anxiety producing, especially if you're an introvert. Yeah, if you're an introvert, yeah. Or if you're somebody who just doesn't get used to the idea of like talking about what's going on for themselves. 
So we help within the first 24 hours to break the ice in all kinds of ways. And it, it's very powerful. So there's a former NFL football player who's got two Green Bay Packers Super Bowl rings. His name's Aaron Taylor, and he was a Hall of Fame football player from Notre Dame. And uh, he's on our faculty, and he introduced us to something called the three vaults, the first vault being the facts of our lives. And that's sort of where we lead with when we get to know people. You know, where do you live? You know, who do you live with? What do you do? And then there's the, the second vault is the stories of our lives. And we can get caught up in our stories, and our stories can be very helpful narratives, but they can also sometimes be limiting because we get stuck in our stories. And then the third vault in our world, and, and the place we rarely go with ourselves and others, is... The third vault where you're speaking from essence, you're speaking from who you are in this moment, unfiltered, unprepared, and it doesn't have to just be emotions. It could actually be even talking about the, what's going on in your body right now. And that is part of what we help people with, is learning how to get to the third vault and build relationships with, pe with people from the third vault. So by the end of the week, you don't even know the last name of the people around you. In some cases, you don't know what career they're in you've not seen their LinkedIn profile, you all of a sudden realize that the person that you've been building a great relationship with is like, oh my gosh, that person's the CEO of a company I've heard of. And it doesn't mean that they haven't talked about themselves. They have, but they have talked about it themselves from a different perspective than what we're used to, which is saying, what do you do as a CEO of that public company I've heard of? And that's a, what a liberating experience. We need more of that. We do need more of that. So as we round out our time together here, Chip, I'd love for you to share more about your new book, uh, Learning to Love Midlife. I can't wait to get my copy as we sit here. We're a few weeks away from its release date, but I would love for you to share what the reader will experience in reading your book. So I've written seven books. This is my shortest book that I've written, and it's the one that's, I think, the most accessible. I mean, you could read this book easily on a flight from New Jersey to LA. Or to Santa Fe. Out of Santa Fe, yeah. <laughs> so it, it introduces people to like, what is midlife? But then it goes into 12 chapters, each dedicated to a reason why life gets better with age. Everything from, you know, we get better in terms of our relationship with our emotions. EQ, emotional intelligence, grows with age. IQ does not. We build wisdom as we age, and that's nothing that gets better with age. We are introduced to our relationship with our soul. You know, we move from the ego to the soul around midlife. And all of the stuff I'm talking about here is not just Chip's thoughts. This is social science research backing it up. But I use social science research as the sort of undergirding for my story and then stories of people who have gone to MEA and their stories. So there's 12 different reasons. And so in some ways, it's a very encouraging and inspiring book, but one that is not just sort of like woo-woo. It's really prescriptive about how do you take steps to embrace some of these reasons why life gets better with age. And so, yeah, if you want to go and, and check it out on my personal website, so there's the MEA website, which is meawisdom.com. But my personal website is chipconley.com. If you go to the book section and go to Learning to Love Midlife, there's actually a quiz there, a midlife checkup quiz that allows you to take a test to figure out which of the 12 reasons why life gets better with age most resonates with you and what which one least resonates with you. For example, for me, the one that most resonates with me is I understand my narrative, my story, and therefore by understanding the unconscious story of my life, I understand where I take it from here. The one that least resonates with me is that I have time affluence. And a lot of people in midlife and later learn how to actually create more space in their calendar. I have not learned that yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm still learning that one too. <laughs> I can do it for periods of time. And I, I like during the holidays, I'm enjoying having a lot of space in my calendar. 
But um, I still live by some creed that says like a full calendar means I have worthy self-esteem. But yeah, it helps you to understand the book a little bit more if people want to go to that, the chipconley.com website and look for learning to love midlife under the book section. Perfect. Well, I'll put that link as well as all the other ways people can connect with you in the show notes. Check out my, my daily blog. It's free. I, you know, we send you an email every morning. And uh, yeah, that you can find that on either of those two websites, chipconley.com or meawisdom.com. Perfect. Well, we'll get you out on one last question. I'm not sure if you remember the show Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. Mm-hmm. This is a derivative of a question he would ask at the end. So assuming, you know, when we end this thing called life, there's a heaven. And when you get to heaven, you get to meet the people that came before you, your elders, yeah, your ancestors. What would you like for them to say to you when you meet up with them again? I, I would love to have them say to me, you know, Chip, you were in service and you helped people to see that midlife is not a curse, but it is, you know, a crossroads leading to a calling. And, uh, and you help people to feel more alive in the latter half of their life. That's good. Amen to that. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. See you in Santa Fe. See you in Santa Fe, Michael. <laughs> yeah, see you, see you. I'm going to go to United now and book my ticket. So thank you so much for coming on the Kintsugi Podcast and really demonstrating what it means to put a positive ripple into the world to help people connect with themselves at this delicate, complicated period of life and connect with each other because... We need more connection in this world. I believe we can get through our tough, muddy moments, those moments in our chrysalis where it's all gooey. We can get through that going back to, you know, the whole the whole saying, no mud, no lotus. It feels muddy right now, but we yeah, we can find a way through and we can blossom like a beautiful lotus with connection and especially through this period known as uh, midlife. So thanks again for joining me. Gosh, is it is it legal to talk that way in New Jersey? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. You sound like a California boy. Yeah, I know. It's a little <laughs> bit questionable. In certain pockets, I can. But, you know, uh, my daughter, my youngest went to school out in California. So I guess that we pulled it from that. So yeah, but uh, good to be with you today. All right. Thank you, Michael. Ah, midlife, it can be messy, complicated, and awesome sauce. And I think I've experienced all of it. Our girls are growing up. They're done with college. My mom has passed away. My dad's 87. I'm 56. I left my corporate life at 47. I'm feeling all of it. And yes, sometimes my body works exactly the way I want it to, and sometimes it doesn't listen. I so appreciate what Chip is putting into the world, this notion that we can tap into wisdom, we can be an elder, and we can fall in love with midlife. It can be a period of time where we transform from that caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. You might know, we like to do a short meditation, just two minutes, 
based on this week's story of connection. This week, we'll drop in to appreciate whatever stage of life we happen to be in based on what Chip has shared with us. So if you're ready, I invite you to settle in to a comfortable position. You can bring a sense of dignity to your posture. And as you get comfortable, you can close your eyes or you may wish to keep them open. And we'll drop in. We'll begin with a few grounding inhales, breathing up fully through your nose. And slowly release the breath, allowing yourself to come into this moment. And when it feels natural, settle into the normal cadence of your breath. And now, I invite you to bring to mind something you appreciate about this stage of your life. Knowing that age is simply just a number, and there's so much you can appreciate in every stage of your life. All right, nice job. You can open your eyes when you feel comfortable and maybe wiggle those beautiful fingers and toes and give your body a little stretch. I'll encourage you to journal if that's your thing or spend an extra moment in reflection as you think about this stage of your life and all that it represents. I want to thank Chip again for sharing his story and sharing his time and, of course, his wisdom. I hope you'll check out Chip's new book, his daily blog, and everything he offers at MEA. I'll put all the different ways you can connect with Chip in the show notes. Chip. Thank you again for putting a beautiful ripple into the world. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the like-hearted humans at SASPod that make the Kintsuki podcast sound so great and help it ripple into all corners of this big blue marble that we all share. And now, I want to thank you for listening and supporting the Kintsuki podcast. And if you want to go above and beyond, in your support. I could certainly use a kind rating, a review, subscribing, or sharing because it does something to the algorithm that I don't completely understand. But when you engage in this way, it helps others find our like-hearted community. If you've already done so, thank you for the extra support. And if you haven't done so yet, today, might be a really good day to do so. And if you'd like to receive some additional resources 
that can help you connect with yourself and others, like my Better Life Workbook and the inspirational text messages I send throughout the week, and of course, our Pause, Breathe, Reflect meditation app. I'll put those links in our show notes. And remember, between now and next week's story of connection, when you have a challenging moment, slow down, come back to your breath, know that you've got this and we've got you. And together, we will ripple something worth rippling into the world. I love you for listening and I hope to see you next week. Until then, toodaloo.